Amen. This morning we're continuing our series in Leviticus. We're going to be in Leviticus chapter 24. Uh, we're looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 23. I'm going to eye for an eye. Don't push me. You push me first. Get up. Don't stop it. Hey, stop it. Break it up. Break it up. Guys, come on. Uh, he started he, it. He started it. No, he, started he started it. He started it. And scene. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So we're going to get into a little bit of that. That's, you've heard that before, right? You know, you've seen that scene, that he started it. Um, I, I hear that every week, you know, at Wednesday Club or at home, both, you know, all the time. It's like, you know, somebody did something and somebody's going to retaliate. And it's, he started, he did this, so I did it back. And, and that whole thing, it's only ever, it's only ever bad stuff, right? You never hear about it with the, like kindness, like, it's never like, I never come home and I'm like, hey, why are, you, why are you cleaning your sister's room? And it's never like, well, she started it. She cleaned my room first. You know, it's never that. It's only ever with retaliation, uh, which we're going to see a little bit today as we look at eye for an eye. But this is kind of a weird chapter where it, um, it jumps around quite a bit. There's a lot of different things that are going to be covered in this chapter. So before we get into that, some of that retaliation stuff, we're going to look at, and don't get too excited, tabernacle supplies. I know, try to control yourselves. Okay, <laughs> tabernacle supplies, verses 1 through 9. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting. Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before Yahweh regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before Yahweh regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. You shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before Yahweh. You shall put the pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to Yahweh. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before Yahweh regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. It shall be for Aaron and his sons. They shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Yahweh's food offerings, a perpetual due. Okay. So first off, we see oil for the lamp. Now this is the, this lamp... Um, was the, the lamp stand. It's actually seven lamps that are kind of arranged on, uh, we think of like a menorah, but it's just got seven um, uh, poles, so one in the middle and then kind of three branches on each side. Uh, these lamps that would go inside the tabernacle and they're to be burning re- forever. Like they're to be burning day and night all the time. There's always a light burning there to symbolize Israel's devotion to Yahweh. They're keeping a lamp lit in the place where God's presence dwells. And so they keep it going all the time. And so they need oil for the lamp. And he says that they need to bring the oil from pure beaten olives for the lamp and keep it burning forever. Now he doesn't, if you notice, like you might notice this, you may, maybe you hadn't noticed this, but if it was your job, if you were one of the priests and it was your job to keep the lamp burning, and you go, okay, where do I get the oil? And it says, just ask the people to bring it. You might go, well, I think that you need to 
say how much everybody needs to bring and tell them that they have to bring it. If I'm supposed to keep it burning all the time, like make them bring it. But that's not what, this is just counting on generosity. This is just counting on the people are going to bring it, doesn't say how much they need to bring, doesn't say who needs to bring it, doesn't, say, doesn't command even everyone to bring it. It just says have the people bring it and keep it burning forever. But this has always been God's formula for keeping the tabernacle supplied, keeping this place where his presence was going to dwell. This is the system he put in place when it was first being built. Back in Exodus, if you remember, when we studied Exodus chapter 25, we see Yahweh said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for, for me. So when he's going to build the tabernacle, they need all kinds of supplies and all kinds of really expensive supplies and, and difficult things to obtain. He just tells them, ask people if their hearts move them that they should give. If we see how it turns out, Exodus 35, verse 20, then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. That's not the right verse. Or I don't have the right verse. I'm going to read the verse I have. This might be 25, 20. They came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought Yahweh's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they just came and they brought it. They brought it. They actually brought too much. We see by the time we get to Exodus 36, this is probably going to be wrong too. No, it's not. Okay, cool. They received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They kept, still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing the, every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that Yahweh has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution and for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material that they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. So he actually has to tell them, stop bringing stuff. You keep bringing, you're bringing too much. Stop bringing them too many supplies. And so this is the system that he's counting on is simply their generosity. And so the question you might ask is, why did the Israelites respond with such generosity? Why were they willing to do this? Why was it going to work for them to continue to bring oil to keep these lamps supplied? They're responding to the fact that God's presence is with them in the camp. They're, they have the presence of God dwelling with them. They want to be a part of what God is doing. And so they just willingly bring whatever they have. This is the system that God uses to this day. That God simply asks us to bring what our hearts are stirred to bring for him. It should be us being excited and interested in what God is doing. Like I talked about with birthday present for Jesus like, I want you to give the birthday present for Jesus if you're excited about being a part of what God is doing. Not because you're, like, compelled to do so, but simply because you're not, not compelled and, like, commanded or something like that, but that you are compelled internally because of the excitement about what God is doing and the fact that we get to be a part of it. It's how this church functions. It's how the, the uh, Israelites were meant to function. We also see in here that the showbread... 
um, is these loaves that were meant to be placed in the tabernacle. And it was symbolic of the relationship with Yahweh, that it was like they were going to share a meal once a week with Yahweh, even though the, the priests are eating and, the, and they're there with, uh, in the presence of God eating this bread. They refreshed it once a week. But it was this idea of, hey, we're having fellowship. We're being with God. Now, like I said, this passage kind of jumps all over the place. We're going to take a hard left and talk about a stoning. Okay, so one of the things that's interesting about the Pentateuch in general, as you read the, these first five books of the Bible, and a lot of, a lot of the Bible, is that there's, it jumps around with ty- different types of literature. So a lot of this has been law, like a law book, where it's just kind of giving out these commands. Now we're, all of a sudden we're going to jump to narrative, and this is going to be a story of something that happened. Okay, so verses 10 through 16. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed, and they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shulamith, and the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of Yahweh should be clear to them. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, And let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Okay, as we look at this story, there's a fight in the camp. This an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, fought with an Israelite in the camp. And in the course of the fight, the woman's son blasphemes the name of Yahweh. He curses the name of God. Curses Yahweh. And after the incident, they take him into custody. They bring him to Moses so they can determine what the will of Yahweh is. They know that this was, that this is command that they, they not take the name of Yahweh in vain, that they need to respect God. And so they don't know what to do now that this has happened. They take him into custody. Now, there are some specific details in this short account. Notice is that whenever we see stories in Scripture like this, I know that there's never as, an, as much detail as we want. Right? There's just never an, as much detail as we want. We're like, we want the full story. Right? You want to see, like, on this incident, you want to see, like, a, a true crime documentary just on this incident. You want all the details. You want the reenactments. You want all that stuff. Right? But we only get some details. And the fact that we only get some details is intentional. Like It points out things that we're meant to notice in the story. It helps us understand what does God want us to get out of this. So first off, the fact that his father was an Egyptian and that he's unnamed suggests that he remained in Egypt. It's even, poss- it's even possible, maybe even likely, that that he was an Egyptian who owned this woman as a slave, and that this was part of a non-consensual sexual encounter that this child was born. The fact that he's Egyptian also points out the fact that he would not, that this man would not have had a father who would teach him to respect the name of Yahweh. His mother's name and lineage are placed there to help place these events definitively in Israel's history, to point out that this is not a fable, 
This is not a parable. This is not a, a, a myth. This is an event that actually happened. Here's the tribe. Here's the woman's name. Here's the woman's mother. Go check it out. This is something that actually happened. So they're pointing those things out. We also see that this man is sentenced to death for blasphemy and cursing Yahweh. And the method of execution is specific and intended to ensure that no one is executed on false charges. Notice the method of execution, that they're to bring him outside of the camp, and then everyone who's going to be a witness to what happened is going to say that they heard this, are going to come and put their hand on his head. This is meant to detract them from, from being like caught up in a moment and, and wanting to like whatever, get revenge on this person or something like that and, and bring some false charges against this guy. Because that, in that moment, you have to touch him. You know, remember that this is a human being, that this is a real life. You're going to feel it viscerally. And you've got to be so sure that this is real that you're going to have to touch this man's head and then go pick up a stone and throw it at him. This would detract from a lot of false charges and false executions. But then that is what would happen, that they would throw stones at him until he was dead. And, and, and commentators point out that this, also ser- this would also serve to us effectively bury him. That this would end up being the method of burial as well. That it would be covered with stones that would create a, a place where you know that there's a dead body there because they needed to avoid dead bodies to avoid being unclean. So this would be a marker. Now, this does seem very extreme, very brutal. I mean, this is, this is a brutal system, but this is what God said. This was the punishment for Israel at this time in this place. That as they have the means of governing themselves, that this is, this is one of the, the crimes that would, that would be worthy of the death penalty. But it's important that, that we note that we're all worthy of death. Right? Ultimately, like, yes, this is a, a crime that results in the death penalty here and now for Israel in this moment this man is dead, but they are all under the curse and that they have all rebelled against God and are worthy of death, just as we all are, that the wages of sin are death, separation from God eternally, not just physical death here on earth, but eternal spiritual death, separation from God forever. That that is the sentence we are all under. And apart from the grace of God, that is what we're all destined for. Apart from the saving work of Jesus on the cross, that is what we're all destined for. Now, this idea of blasphemy brings something up probably for a lot of people, which is you have probably heard at some point, in, if you've been at, around church stuff at all, this idea of the unforgivable sin. Okay? And if you've ever looked that up or talked about it, it's, it's always cited as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. And this is an idea that freaks a lot of people out, especially freaks out uh, Christian teenagers. Okay? So as a youth pastor, I had to have this conversation with Christian teenagers all the time. They're like, what about the unforgivable sin? What if I, yeah, I guess I prayed and I accepted Jesus as my Savior, but what if I blasphemed the Holy Spirit at some point? I don't even know what that is. So what if I did it on accident and then now it doesn't matter that I accepted Jesus because I already did that when I was four, and now I'm done. This is a common uh, anxiety of 
your American Christian teenager, by the way. Um, <laughs> little kid, kids who are raised in the church, that's something they worry about. So let's get it cleared up here. So this idea of blasphemy, first of all, is blatant disrespect for God. It's not something you can do on accident. That's something that, that's important to, to keep, put in, keep in mind. That this is not something you can do on accident. This is something that's done from the heart. This is something that the motive matters. Um, and, and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the one unforgivable sin. We see this in Matthew chapter 12, 31 through 32. And this is part of what freaks people out. Is this something that Jesus actually said? This is Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So why is that the case? Why is, the, why is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit specifically what cannot be forgiven? And it is because it is essentially the thing that blocks you from being able to accept the forgiveness that is being offered. The Holy Spirit's job, one of the Holy Spirit's jobs, is to convict of sin and to awaken the dead sinner to be able to respond to Jesus and accept his offer of forgiveness. If you reject that, if you reject that voice, reject that prompting, you cannot accept the forgiveness that is being offered. So you cannot be forgiven. Forgiveness is available to everyone for all sin, for all time, but you must accept it. You must say, yes, Jesus, I accept the forgiveness that you offer me, that you did on the cross. I accept this payment for my sin, and I want to follow you for the rest of my life. That's what it means when we talk about Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Right? That we accept the forgiveness he's given us, and we turn to him and say we're going to follow him for the rest of our lives. We make him Lord over our lives. If we do not respond to that prompting, we cannot be forgiven, so it is the one unforgivable sin. But again, it's not something you can do on accident. It's not something that you can do if, it, if you feel like, oh, I feel like I did that one time, but then I accepted it later, then that wasn't real, right? If it's something, if your heart has turned, if you have accepted Jesus, if you have come to him, then that was, the other thing, whatever it was, wasn't real, it's not something, in other words, in general, this idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit being the unforgivable sin, if you are somebody who is worried about that, then you don't need to worry about it, right? If that's something that freaks you out, if you're like, well, what if I did commit that thing? I meant the fact that you have the ability to be worried about it after you have accepted Jesus, that, like, that means that, <laughs> that you haven't done that, right? Because you have accepted the forgiveness he's offered. All right, we'll look lastly here at 17 through 23. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am Yahweh your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as Yahweh commanded Moses. 
So this passage kind of clarifies the penalties that can be enforced for various kinds of injuries. The overarching concept is that one should make up for the harm that they have caused. That if someone kills their neighbor's animal, they should give them a replacement. Now, this idea of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, um, you know, injury for injury um, is generally understood by, uh, by both biblical scholars and scholars in general of this region and time period, even among other people groups, have similar laws in, in their um, ancient writings. This idea is, is intended to be creating limits on retribution, um, not to be commanding retribution. Meaning that if, uh, if I did something, I'm messing around with a slingshot and I, I shoot at it and you hit your eye and you lose your eye, that, that you can come and, and demand that my, I lose my eye as well. Right, that, you, that, that they take my eye out as well. And that's the upper limit of what you can do. You can't come and kill me. Right, you can't go, or go beyond. You can't go beyond that. You can't say, well, I'm taking both of your eyes because you took one of mine. You can do up to that point, but no more than that. It isn't commanding that. So it's not like that happens. You've recovered. I come to you and I go, hey, you know, I, you lost your eye and I'm so sorry. You got to take mine now. That's a command is what we have to do. And you go, no, 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 no I don't. I, you know, I know it was an accident. I don't need, you don't need to do that. I don't have to go, no, no, no. Take the spoon. I'm trying to give him some ice cream. What are you talking about? No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, yeah. It's not a commanded thing. It's, it's simply the upper limit of what you are allowed to do. Now, another thing that this passage helpfully points out to us, but I, I don't know if it's the original intent of this passage. Maybe it is, but I feel like this is kind of a modern problem in our culture, that this passage very clearly points out the difference between animals and humans. Notice, whoever kills an animal, verse 21, whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. Very clear difference between animals and human beings. They're very clearly in this passage being put on different levels. Human beings are created in the image of God. They are unique in his creation, uniquely valuable, way more valuable in his order of creation than animals. Not that animals don't have value, not that animals are not lovely and and created in God's image and beautiful and should be valued, but they are not close to human beings. I point that out because that is a problem in our culture today of people not understanding that concept and getting it confused, especially with their pets. You see this, these kind of comments on, on like social media all the time where people talk about essentially valuing their, their pets more than human beings. And, and that is a problem in how we view God's creation because God values people. God sent Jesus to die for human beings, all human beings, not for animals. And, and we as, as believers, we have to get that straight. And oftentimes we get that mixed up, again, especially with our dogs and cats, our, our pets. We oftentimes put their, put their safety, put their value above other, our fellow human beings. And we just got to get that, we've got to start to get that straight and figure that out. And so 
we need to check some of that in our heart and kind of go like, yeah, do I, how am I I placing enough value on human beings that Jesus loved and died for at the expense of of my my pets, my my, these animals that that I love, and it's good to love them and show love to them and be kind to them. Those are all good things. We just have to be sure we have our priorities aligned with God's priorities. Now, you might think as you've as you've read this as we read this passage, you might go, "Hey, eye for eye, tooth for tooth." Like, I recognize that, um, but I know for sure that I've never read Leviticus, right? Like, <laughs> some of you here, like you're like, I've, I've I've had people tell me, like, hey, "Thank you for preaching through Leviticus," because I never would have read it on my own. <laughs> and I think we've seen that that's understandable, um, but. But you might go like, yeah, that, but that sounds familiar. Why does that sound familiar? And it is because this is an interesting passage because this is a, an Old Testament passage that Jesus actively, directly comments on in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, 38 through 42, he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, I remember when I used to read that as, uh, 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 and when I, when I read the Sermon on the Mount and hear him say, like, you have heard that it was said, this passage, right, this, this phrase. And I always thought that he was just, like, commenting on, on like, common wisdom of the day, right? That he was saying, like, you know how people say this, and then he, like, quotes this thing that people have said. But here, he's actually quoting scripture, right? He's saying, like, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But we, like, if we have our theology, right, like, the Trinity, three in one, Jesus is part of the Father, and, and, that's, and, and Scripture is the Word of God. So shouldn't he really be saying, like, you know when I said, right, you heard that I said this? Because he's, he's the one saying this. Does that make sense? Okay. Interesting. I just I think this is funny. They'd be like, hey, remember when I said that? Let me explain a little further. That's essentially what he's saying here. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Why is Jesus correcting himself? Right, if if the word of God is whole, and if the if the the Trinity is united, and this is all from the same source, why is he correcting this? Why is he saying you've heard that this was said, but I say to you, why is that happening? Isn't that kind of confusing? Yeah, it's going to stay confusing. No, we'll clear it up a little bit. So, why is he saying that? Because again, as we talked about this. This eye for an eye, tooth for tooth idea was the upper limit for retribution. It was not commanded that they, that they have this retribution. They can choose to be merciful. They can choose to be merciful. But eye for an eye is justice. Tooth for tooth is justice. You kill my animal, I give you a new animal is justice. You kill somebody, you receive the death penalty is justice but we don't have to demand justice and we don't demand justice when we're the ones in the wrong 
right? When we are the ones who have been injured, when we're the ones who have been harmed, we want justice. You hurt me, make it up, right? You did something wrong to me, you pay. You stole from me, you're going to jail, right? We want justice when we're the ones who have been hurt. But when we're the ones who have messed up, we want mercy. When we're the ones who have messed up, when we're the ones who have hurt someone, we want mercy. You've, even, you've probably even said, like, yeah, I know that I wasn't perfect, but like, why won't she just forgive me? I know that I did something, but I think she should just forgive me. She should get over it. She should forgive me. We want mercy when we're the ones who have done wrong. It's important that we know what justice is but we don't need to demand it all the time. We can choose to be merciful. And what Jesus is saying here is there, is there is justice, but there is something better than justice. There's something greater, and we can show mercy. Showing mercy requires one to be willing to be injured without retaliating. We see Jesus comment on this in, in Luke chapter 6, 32 through 36, where he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even the sinners, even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Another, in another passage, Jesus presents this idea that if we, if we love one another, that is how people will know that we are his followers. He tells his disciples, you know, we sing that old song, that they'll know we are Christians by our love. Right? And we have that idea, but I think oftentimes we stay at this, at this surface level of like, I love you and you love me in return, and I do good to you and you do good to me in return. It's all reciprocal and it's all good, and those are all positive things. But Jesus is clearly talking about a love that goes beyond that, a love that is merciful, a love that is willing to be wrong, that is willing to be let down, willing to be cheated, to, to be merciful in those situations, to forgive one another, to confess sin to one another and be willing to forgive one another. That is that deeper kind of love. Because what he says is, if you love those who love you, if you do good to those who do good to you, even sinners do the same. Everybody does that. You can find that in any club. You can find that in any bar, any association, any group of people are going to be good to those who are good to them. Any group of friends. People don't need the church for that. They can find that anywhere. You can find a group of people who, if, you're, if you do good to them, they're going to do good to you. That's reciprocal. And if you show love to them, they're going to show love to you. The, thing, the kind of love that he's talking about is revolutionary kind of love that is merciful that is willing to be hurt, willing to forgive. Not that we're constantly being taken advantage of. This requires also the willing, willingness to confess and to apologize and to admit that you're wrong, but then to be forgiven for those things. That is revolutionary kind of love. That's what he's talking about. He says, be merciful as your father is merciful. What he shows here in this passage, and as we look at the law in general, look at Leviticus and, and all of the Old Testament law in general, it's often showing us, here's what justice is. But the Apostle Paul points out over and over again in his writings, the law 
shows us how we don't live up to it, how we can't do it, how we can't be righteous on our own, that we need God's mercy. And we see that God is merciful to us because he doesn't impose those penalties on us because he sent Jesus to pay the penalty to us, that he is the one who accomplishes justice by dying for our sins. So then we have received mercy. So that's why he tells us, be merciful as your, fa- as your father is merciful. That we should be merciful because we have received mercy. I'll wrap up with this. Three takeaways for today's message. Number one, give generously in response to what God has done for you. Be excited about, to be a part of what God is doing and give generously in response to what he has done. Number two, have proper reverence for God. We talk about blasphemy and all those things that we need to have a proper reverence and respect for God. And lastly, be merciful as you have received mercy. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and then we're going to take communion together. Then we'll sing one final song. And then we have a prayer team that will be right over here uh, after the service. If you'd like prayer for anything, they would love to pray for you. Would you bow with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that you are a merciful God, that you did send Jesus to die for us, that we might live, that we might have abundant life now and eternal life to come. And God, as we continue our days here um, of sojourning here on this earth. I pray that we would be vessels of that mercy, that we would be vessels of your hope, that we would be a part of what you are doing. We thank you that you invite us in to be a part of what you are doing, to be your witnesses, to tell people about the gospel. I pray that you would empower us to do that this week. I pray all these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.